Years ago, I gained a whole new understanding of the Exodus story with the celebrated Torah teacher Aviva Zornberg. And it was a thrill to sit down with her this year in her living room in Jerusalem. She doesn't so much teach the Bible as inhabit it. She participates in the ancient Jewish tradition of Midrash, of reading between the lines of sacred texts to uncover deeper, hidden layers of meaning. And she creates an experience of these depths intellectually, spiritually, sensually for modern people. The whole tenor of the language is about human life, and God has to find his place And that's why he commands the building of the tabernacle later on. That is, in some sense, God dwells in this world. And it seemed to me that the human language that God is obliged to use is actually that that's the house he lives in. He's willing to accept a kind of lower dwelling place because of what can happen. From APM, American Public Media, I'm Krista Tippett. Today on Being, the Genesis of Desire. Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg grew up in Scotland, but has lived in Israel for the past 40 years. She is wise about modern literature and psychology. The daughter and granddaughter of rabbis of East European lineage, she's also steeped in the Jewish mystical tradition of Kabbalah and its pivotal text, the Zohar. She connects deep and unexpected currents between the Bible and the lived situation of the reader. So, for example, the character of Noah in Genesis. On the surface of this story, God sees a world that has become corrupt and violent and resolves to flood and destroy it. But he commands one man, Noah, to build an ark to save his family and two of every living creature. In the depths of this story, Aviva Zornberg finds a drama about language and civilization. The real crisis of human beings is, she says, that they have become so open that they are closed to one another. Correspondingly, in a way, she and I enjoyed speaking about such things for the first time in person and not by way of technology. This is very different from the studio recording. <laughs> yes, and I, I mean, I remember what was so remarkable is just, I remember just in the end, I put my notes to one side and opened up the Bible and we were just walking through Exodus. So did you think about a text or story or a couple of stories you'd um, like to... There are a number to... of possibilities. I mean, one possibility that I'm very fond of is the act of the Eden story, Adam and Eve mm-hmm. and God mm-hmm. and desire mm-hmm. and, and so on. Another is the flood. I mean, mm-hmm. actually almost everything I've written about is yeah. important to me. So, Why don't we do the flood and see where that takes us? And the flood, I feel, is one of these stories that's like a cartoon story for mm-hmm. people, right? Mm-hmm. They think they know it. Yes. Um, it's a myth in the negative yes. sense. Yeah, yes. exactly. In a negative sense, it's very flat. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I mean, I, I loved reading what you're writing about the flood and all the layers. So where is it anyway, the flood? I just should, have, should have marked it. Uh, chapter 6. Chapter 6, all right. All right. So what, what's happening there? Ah, what's happening there? I mean, everything is happening. I think whatever whatever you can read in the text is happening. Uh, what I'm interested in is the issue of, of language and silence, a kind of defensive silence. And the basis for this apparently very modern theme um, actually is in the Zohar, in the source of Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. Um, which in is which the mystical, mystical, tradition mystical traditions, mm-hmm. which talk about the beginnings of humankind, 
um, as an experience of what's called the exile of the word. Exile of the word. The exile, galuta dibor in uh-huh. Hebrew. Um, as if it's not just people who go through physical tribulations, but that in some way people lose their access to language and have to refind it. Does this loss of connection to language, does that have anything to do with, with the fact of the flood happening, the reason the flood? Okay, let's go back to there. It's a good, mm-hmm. good idea to start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, the flood, uh, the idea, the word that's used for flood, mabul, is an idea of a surging mass of water, of confusion, of chaos. Um, what happens in the flood is that there is a return to a pre-created universe, to the universe okay. before. Without So it's, yes. Without form. Without form, uh, without form and void. Right. Which means specifically then without language. And, and the Hebrew again is, sorry, mm-hmm. is very, very graphic. It's mm-hmm. tohu vavohu. And tohu vavohu, even the sound of it is like a kind of babble, a sense okay. of, you know, a babble of waters and the need to, to control that and in some way give form to that. And that is all lost when everything is destroyed, when everything is flooded. Um, so that, that would be like, almost like the metaphysical implication right. of something very physical. And that void um, is also larger than the loss of language, right? I mean, is it the loss of connection then between human beings, the loss of encounter and relationship? Well, I think by language, um, the, the tradition means, dibur is not technically, just simply t- the technical act of language. It's communication. Mm-hmm. It's connection. Um, it's everything that saves that saves the individual and and the world from being closed up in oneself. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking this is a completely different connection, but I think it works. It's in the midrash experiment um, <laughs> conversation I had recently for the show with um, a philosopher from Princeton who we were talking about civility in the United States. This mm-hmm. issue of mm-hmm. Uh, not just how do we civil conversation and civil society which is a problem Mm -hmm. for us right now Mm -hmm. and uh, he was wanting to resurrect the word conversation Mm -hmm. in a as he said a more old fashioned sense Mm -hmm. of not just words passing between people Mm -hmm. but human familiarity Mm -hmm. like shared life association you're actually describing something very similar absolutely I think that's very beautiful it it, it reminds me of uh, Milton um, just when, in one of his in prose essays, his polemical work, works actually defending marriage, describing marriage, and I think he uses the expression "it's a meat conversation," <laughs> meaning it's just it's, it's a right kind of conversation between two people. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that, he doesn't just mean words; he means a, a whole life. a whole life. Uh-huh. Yes. So then we're with Noah, Noah being confined in his space. That's right. Which the Hebrew word for ark again is teva, which is a box. And that sort of gives you the picture that actually he's boxed in. Uh, very interestingly, the word teva also in later Hebrew means the word. Hmm. It's the word for the word, which the Zohar will play with. The Zohar will have things to say about that. But essentially, it's a prison. You know, It's a floating prison in which the seeds of a new civilization are preserved and it's an extremely unnatural life that's lived in that box. Right. And again, the Zohar and Midrashic sources are, go to town on it. I mean, they really have a lot to say about that. That's interesting, too, because we never, when that story is told, uh, you know, to children, for example, I think it's yes. mostly children who hear the yeah. flood story, we never reflect on the life in the ark. 
you get the two by two. <laughs> yes, yes. Coming yeah. on and then, and then coming out again. at the end. Yes, yes, yes. So how does the Zohar? How does it play the Zohar and, and and midrashic sources. Um, first of all, how did they all eat? How did the animals eat? It's a big right. Yes, I mean, all right. <laughs> maybe they brought on food for the animals, but how did they get at it? Yeah. So the Zohar imagines very beautifully that Noah spends his whole time, morning and night, and you know, day and night. Um, feeding the animals. That's that's an expression of his desire to preserve the world. Um, and he feeds each animal according to its own time, its own feeding schedule. So he's really rather fully occupied feeding the world. He doesn't get a wink of sleep, again, in, the, in, the, in, the, in these Midrashic sources. Mm-hmm. He has no sexual relations with his wife, and no one does. There is no sex, even the animals. Uh, on the ark, you know, don't have relations. Well, with, right, with it would mates. get crowded if they added. Uh, and again, so so none of this is in the text. Right? None of so it, but it's hinted. The hint okay. is, it's a wonderful, it's a, really a hint um, where God says to Noah, you get onto the, come onto the, come onto the ark, uh, you and your sons and your wife and your daughters and her daughters. In other words, they are li- people are listed gender separate. You and your sons, not you and your wife, Mm -hmm. but you and your sons and the women separate. And what you have is a necessary measure for survival, a kind of anti-flood period. It's about a year, which really counters all the madness and the the fusion of things Mm -hmm. uh, in the waters. But then when the time comes to get off the ark and God says, say, Minateva, you know, leave now, he says, leave you and your wife. And by leave, therefore, he means not just get off, you know, get onto the plank and walk off, Mm -hmm. but he means return to a human way of living, which means you and your wife. Dibur, Mm. speaking, the human Mm. thing. Mm. And he leaves with his sons and, again, the women separate, which means that he doesn't really agree to to leave, that there is something about that setup in the box that in a strange way suits him. Um, because it seems to him in some way simply safer. Um, And that way, of course, the end really lies. I'm Krista Tippett on Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, the genesis of desire. We're exploring hidden meanings in sacred text and the biblical unconscious in Jerusalem with the great literary interpreter of Torah, Aviva Zornberg. In her book about Genesis, The Beginning of Desire, she elaborates on rabbinic readings of the character of Noah. She writes, Noah is indeed a man of his world and his time. He shares in the prevailing pathology. He is saved more for what he may be than for what he is. We have only to consider the central fact of his silence. From the beginning to the end of the flood narrative, Noah says not a word. Noah tells his interlocutors, God intends to bring a flood on the world and told me to make an ark so that I and my household may escape. It is not surprising that he is not effective in swaying his contemporaries. His silence is the reverse image of their babble. What fascinates me is Noah's um, 
lack of love for life. Something is lacking in him, and it's called the lack of the word. It's called Again. the exile of the word. Um, it, one way that the Zohar points it out very vividly is that when God says to, to Noah, you get onto the ark with your wife and, and so on, and everyone else will die, Noah says not a word. Hmm. To God, mm-hmm. he doesn't answer at all. He doesn't pray for the for the people of the world, and that it occupies the very center of the narrative for the Zohar. And the Zohar thinks of that 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 absence of intervention by. It's true that even though Noah, in a sense, is a heroic character, because for reasons that we don't quite grasp or that's, that are not spelled out, he's the one person who is saved. Yes. He's not very three-dimensional. It's rather enigmatic. Yes, yes. yes. You don't see heroic qualities. No, you don't. And and the expression is that he found favor in the eyes of God, and that almost sounds, especially in the Hebrew, as if it's a kind of irrational preference on the part of God. You know that God. And that's in the text all the way through, isn't it? Yes, it it really. There's also David as well. Yes, isn't there this word? The idea of liking. The idea of liking. You know, people just like each other, and God also likes people. Uh But for some reason, God sees possibilities in Noah that. But it's not spelled out in terms of solid, you know, character qualities or, or anything like that. But when I when you describe that, that way in which Noah is in a kind of prison, but he seems to have a comfort level with it, whether that's reflected or not, um, which then impedes his capacity to live fully in the world, mm-hmm. to grow up. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that is in fact an image of. Of life, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we all mm-hmm. we each have our yes. prisons. I mean, it would be like it's also this imagery of the difference between a victim and a survivor comes to mind, and mm-hmm. you're kind of describing that. Yes, I mean, being a victim, one mm-hmm. can get very comfortable in that. Absolutely, and and on top of that, I think precisely the things that he can't do in the ark that he mustn't do, like uh, sexual relations, sleeping. Um, the way he spends all his time feeding, it occurred to me that these are descriptions of God. God feeds all living beings, and God doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber nor sleep. And God, of course, has no partner. Um, So in a sense, there's a kind of omnipotence that Noah is is experiencing in this prison, which is very, again, I think very natural, Mm -hmm. that once you you have deprived yourself of, of life, then you see that in some way as an ideal um, and as an expression of ultimate power because you are not compromised now mm-hmm. in any way by the messy world of of talk, of communication. Mm. So to me, there's a sense of a, a defense mechanism and he refuses to let go of it. Right. And that's, a, again, a very common human image. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah, so, so t- how does this come alive for you um? In, in a modern, very modern life and in an Israeli life? I tend to think um, and imagine on an individual basis rather than in terms of collectives, um, although I could see how one could easily apply this politically. Um, but what interests me most, actually, is the life of the human being in an existential mm-hmm. sense and how, how tempting that pathology of the exile of the word is as people, you know, in a way become megalomaniac uh, about 
how only my view is is the right view and therefore conversation in that larger sense um, becomes not only unnecessary but you know, really dangerous. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the, in the end, he becomes drunk. Noah. Noah becomes drunk. And so there's a kind of intoxication that comes of that kind of solipsism and... And, and depression, actually. I mean, that's, it's a strange... Uh, I see it very much in modern psychological and psychoanalytic categories, that it's, not, it's, a, it's an unwillingness even to admit that one's lost something. Mm. So, and therefore, one is not prepared to mourn what one has lost. Um, so really, one is caught in a state of closure that holds no hope at all. It's impossible. It's an impossible situation, but it's but it's a situation that's very human. I think this is also an example of um, how the Hebrew Bible preserves a picture of the messiness of human life. Mm-hmm. It's there in the holy yes. text. Yes, I was having a conversation the other day with um, with someone here in Jerusalem, and he was saying that that's become so much more and more important to him as he's moved through his life. Um, I think uh, it's it's a bit foreign for Christians. I mean, mm. Jesus is such a perfect, okay. but not very three dimensional figure. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's so much that we don't that's not known that the text really doesn't address, truly doesn't address, and there's not this tradition of midrash. Mm-hmm. But even the most heroic figures, mm-hmm. like a David or like a Noah, mm-hmm. the one man who saved, yes. are flawed. These are not fairy tales with happy endings. Mm. No. And even God himself, I mean, that's, that's really going very far, and a traditional reading of the Bible would hesitate before going this far. But I couldn't help feeling, especially in these early stories, that God, in a way, is modeling to people. That aspect of God, which is, can be known by, by human beings, um, is modeling to people how not to be godlike. Mm. In other words, that God behaves in a way that is not entirely godlike, um, and takes the risks of that, as if to model to, to Noah and, and the other characters um, the possibilities of error, the possibilities of what you call messiness, and how that actually is part of, of the dance. It's, it's part of the dynamic of a world that's informed by desire, which is God's world. God desires, God himself desires, he desires there should be a human being in the world. He says, let us make, you know, mm-hmm. in some way diminishing his, his omnipotence. Um, and, and the Jewish tradition emphasizes that, that these are ways in which God connects with us because he connects with our, with our issues of omnipotence and of the necessity for, for a different approach. Mm. I think you also talk about desire animating the reader. Yes, yes. Uh, there's a desire for the text. Yes, absolutely, yes. That we don't... I mean, reading the text half asleep is basically... is nothing uh, in it's the Jewish really tradition. It's not reading the text. You know, you don't read, you, you study. You study the text, and that implies that you don't really understand it, first off. That you, mm-hmm. you read it, and then you read it again, and then you notice things and things don't work, and things don't make sense, and then you're, you're exercised by it. And that's what I call desire, mm-hmm. because something is not. Something that should be there is not there. Um, and that's what gets people going. That's what gets people involved. And, and this very intimate connection between 
uh, between the human being and the text, between Jews and the, and, the, mm-hmm. and this text, um, is a result of that. of desire um, it's a very evocative word but the way you're using it has many layers mm-hmm. that are not necessarily there in a cultural reference to desire mm-hmm. so take me inside that word and I, mm-hmm. I think maybe by, sh- by where you pointing at where you see, how you see it come to life in the text mm-hmm. uh, or in other, other sources uh, yes <laughs> well I'd, I'd have to go back to the Garden of Eden mm-hmm. in that case yeah um, and this innocent little sentence that the Lord God took Adam and placed him in the Garden of Eden, which, when you come to think about it, doesn't make sense. Where was he before the Garden of Eden? We tend to assume loosely that that's where he was created. No, he was created somewhere else, and then God took him. So Rashi, who's the the prime commentary on the, on the biblical text. Rashi is one of the great one commentators. One of the great of commentators. Midrash, Midrash, yeah, Midrash, 11th Midrash, century, Midrash. yes. And he uses Midrash a great deal. So he has this wonderful comment on the word, and God took him. And he says, the implication, what's behind it is that God, how do you take a human being? You can take an object and move it from here to there, but how do you take a human being? And he says, he seduced him with words. He seduced him with beautiful words, and actually the word for seduction is used. He moved him, you know, he he lured him with beautiful words to enter the garden. That is, he couldn't take him by main force, could he? Well, of course he could, (laughs) but God doesn't do that, as it were. When it says God took, it means that he moved him to want to go. Mm. And why does God want him in the Garden of Eden? Because God has some kind of a desire that he wants to see played out in the Garden of Eden, that God desires something about human beings. And in the Midrashic literature, what God desires of human beings is simply that human beings should desire him. Um, and that's like a delicate matter. You know, mm-hmm. How do you affect someone else's desire? Mm-hmm. You can't force because that's obviously not going to work. Um, And therefore it becomes a question of what's called seduction in a positive sense. Mm -hmm. Seduction is something we can't live without. You know, we're seduced by a sunset, we're seduced by a smile. Uh, Life is full of seductions. Um, Some are more healthy than others. Um, But you you can't be without seduction in a live world and you can't be without desire. Mm. And so God presents himself throughout the story of, of the Garden of Eden, I think, as someone who has desires. Um, that he has he has desires and he wants human beings to be a little less again a little less android like you <laughs> okay. know a little less right. autom- a little less robotic mm. and to discover the world of desire which they don't have at the beginning at the very beginning um, they're they're just perfect they're made just just perfect everything fits in place. Um, you can't have desire unless something is lacking. Or? Unless something is lacking. Mm. 
the next generation will have parents mm. and will already be born into what you call the messy world. And there's something about that that God wants, that God loves, because it produces desire. In her book, The Beginning of Desire, a reflection on Genesis, Aviva Zornberg summons some lines of the poet Wallace Stevens from his Notes Toward a Supreme Fiction. The priest desires. The philosopher desires. And not to have is the beginning of desire. To have what is not is its ancient cycle. It is desire at the end of winter when it observes the effortless weather turning blue. It knows that what it has is what is not and throws it away like a thing of another time as morning throws off stale moonlight and shabby sleep. This is the sixth and final program we've created from our rich spring trip to Israel and the West Bank. At onbeing.org, find all those shows with philosopher and rabbi David Hartman, Palestinian philosopher Sari Nuseba, Israeli journalist Yossi Klein-Halevi, Mohammed Darousha, an Arab civic leader of Israel, and voices from the Ida camp, a Palestinian refugee camp and neighborhood in Bethlehem. Together, they reveal many faces of Israeli and Palestinian identity and humanity. Again, that's at onbeing.org. Coming up, more on the story of Eden, which means in Hebrew, delight. Also, Aviva Zornberg on the biblical unconscious. I'm Krista Tippett. This program comes to you from APM, American Public Media. I'm Krista Tippett. Today on Being, the Genesis of Desire, in Jerusalem with Aviva Zornberg. She is a celebrated interpreter of the Jewish Torah, the foundational first five books of the Hebrew Bible. She moves poetically between modern literature and psychology, ancient Jewish mysticism, and the Midrashic art of reading between the lines of sacred text to discern its fullest meaning. The Bible is familiar, she's written. Life is strange. We bring the two together to shed light on life. Years ago on this program, I experienced the Exodus story in a completely new way with Aviva Zornberg. Now I'm with her in her living room in the old Kataman neighborhood of Jerusalem. We started out talking about Noah and the flood. Now we've walked backwards in the book of Genesis to the story of Adam and Eve. This biblical first man and first woman live peaceably and pleasurably in the Garden of Eden, naming the world into being, meeting God in the cool of the day. But in a passage that puzzled me in the Sunday schools of my childhood, Adam and Eve are banished after they eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God has invited them to eat from every other tree, but warned that if they eat from this one, they will die. I remember when I first started uh, 
knowing how to get inside these texts, I was fascinated by the notion of delight mm. in the Garden of Eden, that mm-hmm. Eden it's, means delight. Yes. It's all over the place, actually, yes. once you start. Uh, again, I don't think a word people associate with the Bible. Mm-hmm. So God has created this delightful place. The food is delicious, right? Mm-hmm. The, everything is beautiful. Yes. And as you say, perfect, perfectly yes. suited to their needs. Yes. And then there's an irony there, isn't there, that because it's all perfect and beautiful and delicious... They don't know desire, mm-hmm. which then yeah. it turns out that they can't be complete without that. Yes, and then of course, in the in the difficult way that things always happen, their first real meeting with desire is through the snake, mm-hmm. through a serpent, who comes with his evil seduction, with his you know with his disturbing seduction, and they're not equipped to know how to deal with it. Eve is not equipped at first. And so she allows herself to be seduced by the serpent. And then she seduces her husband. She seduces Adam. So it's, it's a whole, you know, suddenly there it, it is. It's, it's, uh, it's a world that's full of unruly impulses. Um, and the aims, what I see as a, a wonderful turning point, is when Adam lies mm-hmm. to defend himself. When God when asks God him, said, right. where are you? And when he's hiding in the garden. Mm-hmm. And Adam answers, the woman that you gave me. He blames. Yes. She gave me of the fruit, mm-hmm. and I ate. And that's when we were really embarrassed. You know, that's, that's because we identify somewhere now. Ah, this is, I recognize this. This is, this is human. Um, human in an embarrassing way. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't want to acknowledge that that is who we are. And what I suggested, um, and what seems to me very um, plausible, is that it's not exactly a lie. He, he is saying the truth. His wife did give him the fruit, and he did eat. Um, he's ignoring many things. But I think what he's doing, actually, is saying two things at the same time. That on the one hand, he's in a way confessing. That that's the truth. This is what happened. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, he is trying to justify himself. He's trying to pass the buck and to, to, right. to Eve. And that, I think, is the moment of humanity. That's when we really start talking. About who uh, we are and about what we're About who like. we are, yes, yes. Uh, Alex Brodsky said, consciousness, human consciousness begins with one's first lie. Mm. You know, because that's when we begin to be aware of the complexity in ourselves and the different impulses, and that's where poetry comes from as well. You know, not <laughs> only bad things come from saying two things at the same time. You know, as, as long as you have a kind of straight, unequivocal, immaculate version of things, then there can be no poetry, and there can be no mm. tension, um, no desire. Again, it's, the, the, the desire makes itself felt uh, when language comes alive. How do you think about um, the meaning of knowledge, right? It's the tree yes. of the knowledge of yes. good and evil. Let me just say what, something that I was struck by, and as I learned to read this, but I, I want you to open it up and take it another direction, if you will. That I, For one thing, I think uh, to a Western mind that there should be something wrong with knowledge, mm-hmm. that God should forbid knowledge, mm-hmm. uh, is offensive mm-hmm. and strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, strange for the faithful and and uh, the problem with religion mm-hmm. for the for, for the unbeliever, mm-hmm. but the knowledge that Adam and Eve gain is is petty. I mean, it's not evil. It's not catastrophic. It's evil. It's like they know that they're naked, where as before they were very happy, mm-hmm. and they know how to 
they know how to lie and they know how to blame. What is that word, the knowledge? What yes. is the image in the Hebrew that... Well, you know, when sexuality begins properly between Adam and Eve, the word that's used is vayeda Adam, that Adam knew his wife. Right, knew, knew right. Eve. So... And is that the same word? It's the same word. It's the same word. So I can't help thinking it's not theoretical knowledge that we're talking about here. We're talking about consciousness in its fullest sense and intimacy. Mm -hmm. And again, it has to do with communication and language. And God wants it, actually. The knowledge. He wants the consciousness. he 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 wants that to happen. There might have been better ways for it to happen, but it happens in this way. And perhaps in the end... Uh, it's not so clear that that God wasn't opening opening the sluice gates mm-hmm. in a way to, to to all that, because without that, God drives Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden mm-hmm. after that, and it seems almost as if a new period has to begin now, in which the bliss, what you call the the total pleasure, the French have this lovely word jouissance. Hmm. which I, I, I think of for, for, for Aden, for, for Eden. Yes. Um, that total bliss is, has to be, in a way, moved out of. There is a, a kind of divorce from that kind of relationship with God, that kind of relationship between man and woman, and into something more and complicated. And even that relationship with the natural world, with the natural which is world, very evident with the natural these world. days. Yes, yes. And there is an ideal somewhere in Jewish thinking of ultimate return, mm-hmm to the Garden of Eden, but clearly it's not a return to what it w- the same way it was because once you've been through experience, you know, you return to innocence in a very different way. And, yes, yeah, so I, I think knowledge really has a lot to do, again, with desire. Um, and, in fact, one of the, the great commentators, Nachmanides, uh, translates the word as desire. The, the word knowledge is... The word knowledge here, the knowledge of good and evil, the tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he understands as the tree of desire uh-huh. for both good and evil, um, that is, the capacity to love and to hate, he says. That before there was no loving and no hating because it was just... Everything was, in a way, unequivocal. to me that what you're describing kind of harkens back to this larger theme of almost a maturation process of God's relationship or God's God's desire for what human beings might be, the relationship, how God might build that relationship. Um, I mean, I don't even know how to say it. So I was thinking after we were talking about Noah a minute ago, just as I was turning the pages when we moved to Genesis, I saw... As you said, there was this moment where God's in, in this Everett Fox a translation, yes, yes. which tries to s- stick closer to the Hebrew. He yes, says, yes, he, and God was sorry he had made them. Yes, yes. But um, it's almost like what you're describing is a learning process on the part of both God and mm. humanity. Yes. Um, I have to confess that I have a, a little reservation about that kind of language about God, it's, I don't, I don't. It doesn't come smoothly to me. The which language? Uh, the language of God, learning. Okay. God learning. 
And the way in which I've, I've come to think about it, I know this is part of, it's the way people do talk now, that God learns, especially in the flood story. Mm-hmm. And he changes his mind and he realizes no more floods and, and so on. Um, the way in which I've come to terms with it um, is to think of God as a character in the story who obviously cannot be perfect. As a character in the story, he can't be omniscient and, and omnipotent. That he, and, and the way the story is told, in fact, makes that clear. The, the God who, according to Jewish tradition, has written the story is like the author vis-a-vis the character. Um, and the God who transcendentally um, is at the back of the God who writes the, the Bible is yet again another stage further away from projections of various kinds. But the God in the story itself, God has written a story about himself as a character. And, and that character, yes, learns. He learns because... He wants to teach human beings to learn. Mm-hmm. You know, somewhere there's a kind of modeling there, which may be very far from, you know, an official education agenda. You know, it's not necessarily an educational project. It's just something you can't help picking up as you as it, you're reading. It's more of a creative process. It's a creative process. Yes. So when I was first thinking about theology, I was I was also writing fiction and reading people writing fiction and yes. You know, there are all those, we, we use so many metaphors to think about God, and the one that's most, I don't know, readily at hand is God as Father. But I, I've, I've thought about, you know, God as author. Mm-hmm. But so, you know, people who write creatively often describe how their characters, if, their char- if the story comes to life, mm. they lose control, yes. even though they are the writer. Yes. Um. I think loses control as, in the same way as a human, as you say, as a human writer loses control. It's not exactly losing control. No. It's actually discovering forces that were not explicit before, that were not fully, uh, and suddenly they find these forces and these these ways of of creating things um, suddenly become real. And so in that sense, it's losing control in in terms of a, a neat as we say, an unmessy package. And that, losing control in the sense of having to interact yes. then with the other, yes. the three-dimensionality. Again, again the idea is a, of is language. A, mm-hmm. Yes, that once words are used, then they are inevitably human words. Mm. And God has to use human words. However divine the words are, they're clearly a restriction on his infinite power, um, and it's a blessed restriction mm. in some ways because it makes a world possible. I'm Krista Tippett on Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, the genesis of desire in Jerusalem with renowned Torah teacher Aviva Zornberg. You often bring literature, not religious literature, yes. just literature into, yes. your, into your midrash in a way, mm. I think. Is that fair to say it that way? I think something very moving for me when I finally read the Genesis story closely was this image of God planted a garden in Eden slash land of pleasure, which is however mm. Fox has translated it. Mm. 
this idea that I, I can't find it. It's, it's repeated a couple of times, I think, of Adam and Eve living in this land of pleasure, meeting God in the cool of the day. There's mm-hmm. this proximity. Mm. Um, and then there's an echo of that, which is kind of, which is sad or nostalgic in a way, after they are expelled from the garden. And God has done this, right? Mm-hmm. There's just this one line. It's verse 21, um, chapter 3. Now Yahweh God made Adam and his wife coats of skins mm. and clothed them. Mm-hmm. Which, as you said before, they didn't have parents, which means they couldn't be fully human. But yes. this is a very paternal gesture. Yes. Yeah. And they've been punished. Yes. And then yes. they're clothed. Very tender gesture. Yes. Yes. It's, um, in fact, it's typical, again, of, in this case, I think it's a Talmudic source, that says, from here we learn that we should clothe the naked. Ah. In other words, we learn from God's actual behavior, which in a way is kind of ungodlike, you know, that God should be involved in such physical things as actually clothing people. But, um, But the whole tenor of the language is about human life. And God has to find his place. Um, what, came, what came to mind again when I thought about that was the beautiful expression that's used about God, that he, has, he looks for a dwelling place in the lower worlds. Um, and that's why he commands the building of the tabernacle later on. Mm-hmm. That is, in some sense, God dwells in this world. And it seemed to me that human, the human language that God is obliged to use almost captive is, to is actually th- that's the house he lives in that's mm. the dwelling place mm. of god that he's willing to accept a kind of lower dwelling place a place that doesn't really suit his his grandeur um because of what can happen you know once once this the lower worlds are acknowledged to have god in them and so you're not just thinking about the our texts but but the texts included. I mean, that's the, the text included. Oh, I see. The written text. Yes, te- yes. The, the sacred text. The sacred included. text. Yes, that, but not that only. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. I mean, that's an interesting way to think about how powerful this kind of text, this text is, mm-hmm. and yet uh, flawed. I mean, it, not not enough. Yeah. Not enough. Not enough. Needs reading. Ne- uh-huh. Needs reading and reading. <laughs> Because, I mean, in a way that may be its perfection, but it's a perfection via, that goes via apparent imperfections. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the energy that's created then of, of the reading process is much more important than having a perfect text, whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. Which I think is actually an impossibility. I don't know what a perfect text would be. Mm-hmm. But I also mean... Uh... You might think, uh, in the abstract, that if human beings are encountering the Word of God, that that would be enough to, mm. right, to to live by mm-hmm. to, and to mm-hmm. live to get it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that again, for outsiders mm. to our traditions, would say would point at the fact that there's supposedly the Word of God, and there's so much, but then humanity is humanity. Mm-hmm. But what you're describing, mm-hmm. I mean, of course, of mm-hmm. course, it doesn't suffice. There's no fail-safe, um, there's no password to the good life in a text. It's all alchemy. It's all how we, how we incorporate the text, what we do with it. Mm. And again, that, that word, that language is, 
is life. It's not just, mm-hmm. not just words, not just speech. Well, I think speech is involved very much in it. Um, but yes, I mean, the Torah, the Torah is life. It's, it's, it's a plain statement, you know, that is made. The psalmist makes it in, in different ways. Um, and it's life in its most immediate. You know, people who are imbued with the text, with the, with the biblical text, it's always in their minds, in some sense or other. That is, that things are always floating up. Words are always floating up and and completing things and opening things up. And so you sometimes see, and on, I, this is one of my memories of my father on Jerusalem bus, you know, sort of getting onto the bus and sitting next to some other bearded character. And the two of them just beginning to have this cryptic <laughs> conversation <laughs> in which, you know, it'd be one quote and another quote, and, you know, kind of barely opening their mouths, <laughs> you know, just it communicating sort of under underground. Mm. You know, no one else could have could have told what they were what they were talking about, but they're talking at a depth. Mm-hmm. The title of your most recent book, The Murmuring Deep, mm. so evocative. Is that does that point at that that depth you're talking about or just describe what you mean by that phrase. I suppose by the murmuring deep, I mean the living and rather disturbing being of of the universe, what was called the deep, the tohom, uh, at the beginning of, of, of Genesis, that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. Uh, the idea that might not have been a silent deep, but actually mm. that there might have been a murmur or a moan or something coming up from there, which in a way had to be interrupted in order for there to be speech. You know, that light had to come into the darkness and speech had to come and disturb that very disturbing sound, which is a kind of sound of basic life, which is always there nevertheless, as far as I can understand it. Underneath all the words we say, what we what we are really communicating with on some primal level, kind of elemental level, is, I suppose you could say, the unconscious or way things that cannot be put into words, which are also part of communication. It's also part of 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 what we convey to one another. Hmm. All right, you say the the biblical unconscious. So you're, it's the reflections on the biblical unconscious, and hmm. what you're kind of describing is that. Biblical unconscious meeting the human unconscious mm. and the strange and essential things that happen in that. Yes, yes. That and that's, that's really the joy of reading. I think that, that we are not solving riddles when we read the Bible, but we are responding with, with everything that's in us. And we're, we, have, we trust that there is enough there to, to meet that. What else? Anything you want to say? As we finish, anything you just that's come to you that you want to bring in any image or story or I think what we are doing now um, is an example of what we're talking about. Um, that there are all kinds of desires at work in this kind of conversation, and that adds a richness to what officially is going on. Um, sort of guesswork, you know, like. Mm-hmm. What, what are you really saying? What am I really saying? Right. Uh, and so on. And as, as precise as we try to be, we never quite say it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what makes it interesting. That's what makes it exciting. 
It's that dialectic between strangeness and fam- familiarity yes, yes, that you also yes, describe. Yes, yes, And without the strangeness, you know, uh, it would be a very dull affair. It, w- it wouldn't really give birth to much. Mm. Aviva Zornberg, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. I've enjoyed it. Yeah. Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg's books include The Murmuring Deep, Reflections on the Biblical Unconscious, and The Beginning of Desire, Reflections on Genesis. At onbeing.org, you can listen to this show again, download it, and share with others. And you can watch my entire interview with the delightful Aviva Zornberg in her home in Jerusalem. Find this video and audio on our website, along with all the other shows from our spring trip to Israel and the West Bank. They have a range of voices and titles like Thin Places, Thick Realities, Pleasure More Than Hope, The Evolution of Change, and Children of Both Identities. You can also always like us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash onbeing or begin to follow us on Twitter at beingtweets. This program is produced by Chris Hegel, Nancy Rosenbaum, and Susan Leem. Anne Breckbill is our web developer. Special thanks this week to Fouad Abu-Ghosh and to Eric Sornberg. Trent Gillis is our senior editor. Kate Moose is executive producer. And I'm Krista Tippett. Being is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org, and the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next time, Alan Rabinowitz. A profound stutter as a child left him virtually unable to communicate and to prefer animals to people. He made his name as an explorer in some of the world's last wild places. He has extraordinary insights into the animal-human bond, the evolving science of wildlife conservation, and what it means to be human. Please join us. This is APM, American Public Media.